Amen. Take a seat. We're going to end our, this will be the last sermon on Angry Birds, by the way. Look at this text for a while here. Hopefully you see the value of understanding what these individual words mean, like humility, gentleness, patience, you know, tolerant love, unity. We'll talk about unity this morning. But it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes to receive from you that which you have decreed that we would receive this morning. We come to you as chicks with our mouths open, and you are the one who are feeding us. Holy Spirit, I specifically ask you to empower me and to remove myself from the equation And it may be as if, again, Jesus Christ himself were physically present behind this pulpit teaching us for the sole purpose that the beautiful body of Christ, the church, would be built up to the end that you would be glorified. This we all pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk this morning uh, about really the end goal of living an offense-free life, and that is uh, unity. We're going to talk about the story. It's called The Laughing Devil. It's a story from a book called A Dream Come True by James Ryle. Just listen to this. Says, Years ago, I became involved with a church that was embroiled in a bitter disagreement. Now, that has never happened here, Right. There's never been any problems in this church or any church that I know of or ever been a part of or ever heard of, right? The congregation was solidly divided and there seemed to be no solution to the conflict. The Bible says, by pride comes nothing but strife. That's Proverbs 13.10. By pride comes nothing but strife. I knew that pride was at the heart of the problem and that both sides were at fault. And I wondered how I could go about convincing them of this and bring healing to the problem. Then that, that night, I dreamed I was standing by a church that had been burned down. There was nothing left but a pile of smoldering ashes. The people were gathered on either side of the pile, screaming at one another. Those on one side cried out to the others, You did this. To which those on the other side answered, No, we didn't. You did this. This bickering went on and on, back and forth like schoolyard children. Then in the dream, I saw Satan standing by himself, bellowing so hard with laughter that he could hardly speak. Roaring with demonic delight, Satan rose up and mocked the defeated church, saying, You are both wrong. I did it. He took special pride in saying the word I. 
Satan then laughed so hard he fell to the ground holding his sides. The dream ended. Now I share this with the I shared this with the congregation and God used it to turn the situation around. The people were able to realize that they were not enemies but brothers and sisters. They saw that their battle was not against flesh and blood but against the devil and they rose victorious above the strife and preserved the church from splitting. Now, you've heard me say before over and over again, and I've talked about this ad nauseum, but you know, you've heard the story of, of a church that has split over the, the choice of the color of the carpet. Okay? And so the church doesn't have the best history or testimony of unity. But what I like about this particular story is it is a story that moves from uh, potential division to sure unity. The unity of believers is crucial to our Lord. Get your Bibles out. I want you to turn to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I say it again, that the unity of believers or the unity of the church, the unity of the body of Christ... It is absolutely crucial to our Lord and to the mission of the church. I want you to hear that, to the mission of the church. Let's listen to John's words. John chapter 17, 20 to 23. This is Jesus praying, and he, he prays this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now we're going to look at this passage uh, more closely in a moment, but simply put, John is saying that the gospel, and you know what the gospel is, right? The message of salvation is most powerfully displayed in the unity of the church. Did you know that? The gospel is most powerfully displayed in the unity of the church. Now notice he doesn't say that the gospel is most powerfully displayed when it is spoken. Yet it is obvious to even the casual observer that that doesn't seem to be the fact with the church. Churches seem to be divided. They're filled with friction, animosity, and breakups. And this is a far cry from what our Lord prayed in John chapter 17. And like I said, let's take a closer look at John 17. Look at verse, starting in verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now, Jesus is praying to the Father, not just on behalf of the disciples who were present with him at that time, but for who else? Everyone who will believe in him through the words of the disciples contained in the New Testament. Okay? So this is a prayer for all believers 
through all history. And what is his prayer for them? Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Let me say it again. That they may be one. And this oneness is intensely profound, for it is the same oneness of what? The same oneness that the Father and the Son share. You see that? It is a deep union of shared divine or eternal life. And this union is so great and powerful and magnetic and attractive, you catch this, that people, what? They believe in Jesus because of it. Do you see that? I want you to see that it is the unity of the church that puts the saving power of God on display. Verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Think about this. The glory that the Father shares with the Son, the Son shares with who? With us. So that we literally, not symbolically or figuratively, literally become partakers of the divine nature of God. We share in the very life of God. We have all the attributes. Let me qualify that. We don't have his incommunicable attributes. I'm not all-powerful or all-knowing. But his communicable attributes, like love and mercy and righteousness, we have holiness. We have all of that. So we have all the attributes and essence of God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And since they are one, guess what? We too should be one. Because this prayer is ultimately about unity. Verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now the word perfected in verse 23, that means to complete or to consecrate. When you think of something that's consecrated, it's something that's set apart. It's talking about Holiness. And what Jesus is praying when he says that they may be perfected in unity is this. That the very life of God in us, that holy consecrated life, and if we have the life of God in us, if God was within us, we're going to live a holy lifestyle that's revealed on earth by our unity, shows the world that Jesus came from heaven. So the life that we're to live, okay, on earth... By our unity, tells the world that Jesus came from heaven. So, if I can summarize these verses up to this point, it says this: it says, "For all believers through all ages, Jesus prays twice that they may be one." Verse twenty-one and twenty-two. He also prays not once but twice that the purpose of our unity is so that the world may believe the gospel and be saved. Did you know that about unity? So the credibility of the gospel is built upon the ground of the unity of the church. That's what 
he's really praying. That's what he's saying here. So personal testimony is nothing but words if it is not backed by a supernaturally infused, united church. Folks, do you see that God has given the church great power in its unity, and that unity lays the groundwork for personal testimony? I mean, if you've ever shared your faith, you will know that one of the first excuses people give for not placing their faith in Jesus is what? It's the church. I used to ask people, did you ever grow up going to church? And I got such a negative response. I said, do you have a faith background? I stopped mentioning the word church because it was an immediate turnoff. In fact, one national evangelical leader said recently, I love Jesus, I don't like the church. Again, the ground of credibility of the gospel is the unity of the church. And where that doesn't exist, personal testimony is hindered, if not useless. Now, Paul echoes the words of Jesus in his letter to the Ephesians where he says this. You can just listen to this. By the way, it's verse 4 and 6 of Ephesians. After the verse Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 we just read, it's verses 4 through 6. He says this, There is one body, one spirit, just you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. It's seven ones. Now, what kind of unity is Paul talking about in Ephesians 4? Go back to Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bibles, okay? And we're going to talk about what we call internal unity. Internal unity. Is everybody there? Okay. Now, you're in Ephesians chapter 4. Go back two chapters to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. I'm going to explain to you what I mean by internal unity. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, there we go, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So he's contrasting oneness with division. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who are far away, meaning Gentiles, and to those who are far near, meaning Jews. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So not only are Jew and Gentile united into one new man, reconciled to God, and have access in one spirit to God the Father, folks, we are also his dwelling place. Look at verse 22. 
in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So through Jesus' death on the cross, see, we are united with God and we share his life. So that prayer for the internal union of the church that we just looked at in John 17, that was answered by the Father. All who are in Christ are what? One, right? See, this internal unity is part and parcel of God's intention of bringing all things together into unity in Christ. Go back to Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. This was always God's plan. It says, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. The summing up of all things in Christ, that literally reads in the original language, to gather together in one in Christ. So at the appropriate time, God's going to gather everything together in one in Christ. Now, since the church, and when I say the church, it's the body of Christ. It has been designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness and the pattern on which the reconciled universe of the future will be modeled. Just listen to Ephesians 2.7. The whole purpose of this is this, that in the ages to come, that God might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're going to be a trophy on display, our unity, our oneness, for the entire universe for all eternity to see. So because of God's, the church is supposed to be that, believers are expected to live in a manner consistent with this divine design. We already have an internal unity. We are united with God. We are at peace with him, right? That was what Jesus wanted. The Father answered that prayer. And we are to live a life of internal unity in our heart that is manifest in our outward life. And this leads to what I call external unity. Now, the best example of external unity was the early church. This is something that you can see. Here, we have a, a picture of it. The early church, the first church. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Now, the early church shared the same mind about many things, including their possessions. Well, think about this. Well, how did this come about? Well, we know this now, that God had created an internal unity in their hearts through Christ, right? They simply maintained the same unity they experienced in their hearts. And this was the greatest, most profound, and most satisfying unity the world has ever seen. And as a result, there was no division. And this was astounding, folks. This was, this was something to see. Because just a few days before, when 3,000 people came to Christ on the day of Pentecost, 
Where'd they come from? Do you remember? They're from everywhere. What was going on at that time? Was the Passover happening? They came from everywhere, all different kinds of countries. They didn't speak the same language, right? They came to Christ because his tongues fell on the, the, their early believers. And what did they do? They were speaking in their own languages. So they were from all different languages and backgrounds and countries and so on. And yet they were what? They were one. I mean, look what this unity did. I mean, God was pleased to perform signs and wonders, namely miraculous healings that accompanied the preaching of the gospel. And this is what happened. Look what happened here. More and more what? Men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The credibility of the gospel is built upon what? The ground of the unity of the supernaturally infused United Church. This is one of the reasons why the early church was so effective in their evangelism. Now, remember, Jesus' prayer was that we would be one as the Father and the Son were one. That was initially answered externally in the early church. Remember John 17, 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. We're seeing that play out now. They're unified and the world is seen and they are believing. And it's not like they're really working that hard in their evangelism. People are just seeing this and they're believing. But I don't want you to miss this either. Our supernatural unity is also to manifest the love that God has for his children. And love them even as you have loved them, Jesus prayed. You know this verse, for God so what? Love the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How about John 13, 1? It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Through our unity, the world is to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and, 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 and the world is to see the powerful love that God has for his own children. Now, how do we put that on display? How do we make that believable? Well, it has to be more than words. It has to be demonstrated. Now, in the church, the world is to see those who are redeemed in an inexplicable joy, a peace that surpasses understanding, a divine contentment, an enduring patience, an unfathomable love, and a radical obedience, here's the key, folks, that could never have been caused by any human effort. That's how we demonstrate to the world the transforming power of the gospel. And that's what makes individual testimony believable. Let's go back to Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. The end goal of the worthy walk is unity. We're going to talk about making the internal external. I suppose that if Paul were to insert a question to the Ephesians in, in 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it would be this. Because he's given us everything. Remember that, that the specs of the car, the first three chapters? Remember that? He's given you everything you need. How do we make that internal truth a visible truth? How do we make the internal external? Well, to put it another way, we would ask this. What does a worthy walk look like? You follow me? And we have an end goal, thankfully. It's verse 3 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to display the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To keep this unity means to maintain it visibly. If the unity of the Spirit is real in our hearts, it must be transparently evident in the church. Does that make sense? This is the responsibility believers have before God through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. So to live in a manner which discredits the unity of the Spirit, i.e. to live in offense, to divide the body of Christ, to spread gossip and division and strife, to do all of that, is to insult the gracious, reconciling work of Christ and his gospel message of salvation. It is tantamount to saying that Christ's sacrificial death, by which all relationships with God and others have been restored and united, are of no real meaning to you. That's what you're saying when you're part of division, when you are living in a state of offense. Simply put, we make the internal reality of an external reality visible through the worthy walk. And this is what Paul is begging us to, first of all, display this supernatural unity by walking in total humility. That's the first thing he says. The worthy walk is a walk of total humility, with all humility. We have a high heavenly calling. It is a privilege beyond comprehension that the triune God lives in you and me, and yet we are to demonstrate it, our heavenly standing with God, not by being proud, but by total humility. Walk worthy of the Lord by recognizing how unworthy you are in putting the interests of others above your own interests. Eliminate self. Then you're able to walk in gentleness. All the privilege all the power you have, you keep it under control. You do not retaliate when offended. You do not defend self because there is no self. You've removed it. It's eliminated. And the only anger you demonstrate is a righteous anger when God's honor is slandered. That's when the line inside you roars. But the line never roars in defense of itself. Then you're able to walk patiently. It's that patience is an attitude that never gives in to negative circumstances. It takes whatever people dish out, and it never, ever questions God. Now, how long are you to be patient? I don't like this verse, but I felt compelled to share it. James 5, 7, and 8. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Ugh. 
So the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Until the Lord's come, that's how long you to be patient. So we don't have any guarantee of any intervention until the Lord comes back. So be patient until the end of life or the return of Christ. And then finally, we walk worthy. We maintain a unity when we bear with one another in love, even though people may be and will be hostile towards us. You carry that person in love. You stretch your love muscle as far as you can. You extend love as far as it is possible to the point of covering their sin. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And folks, you are never more like God than when you love your enemy. So the path to preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to have unity in the church, is the path of total humility of controlled gentleness, astonishing endurance and patience, and a forbearing love. You see, humility is a positive virtue that replaces God or self with God and others. Gentleness is a positive virtue that replaces anger with love. Patience is a negative virtue that withholds anger and waits on God, and forbearing love is a positive virtue that replaces receiving with giving. This is what we need to see in the church. Now, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Because we're going to see an example of this in Paul's life. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 4. The end goal of the worthy walk is unity. It says, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, this is Paul speaking, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. So in purity and understanding. See that in verse 6? Paul remained faithful to what he knew. You want to be able to endure anything? Look at that list there that he, he just mentioned. Remain in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, and the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. See, Paul took anything and everything. Now, why did he do that? Well, because it was important to teach the early church believers this point. Because what was happening to them? The only church was persecuted. I have served in, in, not including this church, but three other churches prior to coming here. They were all unhealthy, dysfunctional churches. The second church I served in, opportunity came for me to be a part of a, of a, of a to create some division and bring, bring some hurt to the body of Christ. 
I turned away. Decided it was time for me to move on from that church. When I was at the last church, <laughs> after all that I had done, and been there, and, and was there, Moses, their savior, got them to the new site and whatnot, um, I was told that there was going to be another review of me, which is a normal annual review, um, and that they need to do a better job protecting me. And then when I went into that uh, review, that was in August, in October, when the review, they basically threatened me with my job. And what they do with pastors, and this is going to sound awful, but it is common. It happened to the pastor that I served under in Bowling Green. It happens a lot, is that church boards don't know how to review pastors. And so they go with a business model, which basically is once a year, they get an opportunity to beat up the pastor. That's why pastors leave so much. It's not this that we, we don't like. It's the, it's the monthly board meeting where you typically can get beat up. Tom is laughing because he knows this and so on, but... So they sat there and reviewed me, and they wanted to keep reviewing me, and basically they didn't like my personality, and they kept persecuting it. And I knew that God was probably calling us out, and Eric and I knew this, but I said to myself, well, as long as God has me here, and this is the other point, and Don and Frank and others will understand this, they don't know how to run a church. They're not trained to do that. Don's an engineer, you're an IT guy. They defer to me in how to do the church, and we talk things through and so on. Well, when you have a board of people of electricians and plumbers and psychologists and safety people, they have an excise clue how to run a church. Then when they start to take over, okay, and they, they take your job, you do your responsibilities while you're still on staff, that's not a good thing. So I'm sitting there and going to these, these monthly meetings and they're persecuting my personality because they think that's what they need to do. I'm taking it. Now, I'd been through a lot, and so I said to myself, and I only remember this because of studying, preparing these last two or three sermons, that, yeah, I did this. I said, I can take this. I can endure this to protect the church from them because they were blind. They were made so many mistakes that I saved them from while they were persecuting me and trying to get me fired and move on from me. I protected them. They were going to spend money, misuse funds that we told the church that we were never going to do at an annual meeting. In a Mennonite church, to misuse funds, it's like as if the pastor commits adultery. I mean, it's, that's how they view money. And I've stopped them from that. I protected them. Now, why would you do that? I had to protect the church from them, in my mind, to preserve What? The unity of the church. They also had the pastor before me did not leave well. And when I left, it was such a different way the way I left that the people saw it. And I had the former president of the denomination come up to me and said, I've never seen a pastor leave as well as you did. See, that stuff has to be, my point is, I'm not, I am not tooting my own horn. That is what must be modeled for the church, just like Paul did, I can take it. And guess what? You can take it too. How am I saying that? Why am I saying that? Because you have the same spirit in you, the same Holy Spirit that I had within me. It was a choice. It was painful. 
Those muscles of love are being stretched. Now, we are living in a time, and by the way, I've been involved in previous attempts to get me fired. This church, they, the leaders weren't doing it with a bad motive. They just felt that this is what God called them to do, and they did a very poor job. It happens to pastors. Now, we are living in a time when an unprovoked Russia is at war with Ukraine, right? Now, every day you could turn on the television or look on your phone or your tablet, and we just see the, the, the devastating destruction as a result of this conflict. Now, how many times have the Russians and Ukrainians um, met for peace talks? Is it three or four? Something like that. And what's been the result of those peace talks? There is no peace, right? A history professor once said this. I think I shared this with you. Do you know how many peace treaties have been broken throughout history? And the answer is what? All of them, right? Now, the world can only know division and discord and disharmony. But in the midst of all this strife and chaos, there is to be an oasis of beautiful unity, a harmony of peacefulness among a body of people that the world is going to look at and see and say, what is that? And that's when we can say, that's what Jesus can do. Only we can manifest to the world that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. But we must be a community of peaceful, loving, united people in one mind. And if we, if we, if we walk the worthy walk, total humility, gentleness, patience, forbearing love, then the world will see that we are different. And they're going to say, you're different. And they're going to ask, well, why are you so different? And see, we can then point them back to who? To Jesus. And it's just by living that way. It's not sharing your faith with them. It's just being united and living this supernaturally peaceful life. They will be forced to conclude no mere man has ever been able to make that kind of peace. It's got to be divine. It's got to be supernatural. But we forfeit this privilege when we live in a state of offense. We forfeit this privilege when we bicker and we, when churches divide. Over all things, the color of stupid carpet. And so you, you want to live an offense-free life, which is really, you know, this last six sermons. You need to walk in a manner worthy of your supernatural calling. You do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what a dying world needs to see. Because our unity, again, is the ground for our personal 
witness. And so I want us all, I, I don't know what else to do. I have to ask you questions in sermons. I've asked you to memorize stuff. You know, it was a choice for me to do what I did at the last church. It was simply a choice. I knew it would involve pain. But I knew that in the power of the Holy Spirit, I could bear it. I could endure it. And I strive and would strive to love through it. And so you can only make that choice, but you can only make that choice if you know. And in the midst of all of that, that, that struggle, I saw God do some very special things in my life. And so I'm asking you just to remember to always strive for unity. It doesn't mean that you tolerate sin, but no, you just strive for unity. You don't and should not be offended. You can live an offense-free life. There is no special formula, folks. It's simply the hard work of dying to self every day, of practicing that by walking in gentleness, of being patient, which for me means just get out of the road when I'm driving, okay? Get out of my way, and I'll be fine. You know, and then love. Give, give, give. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close with a song this morning. Lord, we thank you for your words to us. I hope that people have been touched. I hope minds have been sharpened. I hope emotions have been pricked. And I hope, Lord, that that you are ultimately glorified. Would you make us a people who are unified, a people who aren't easily offended, a people who can take it, and not just grit through it, but love through it. That's what a lost and dying world needs to see. Be pleased with our last song this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.